This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, for it is in your word that we learn to think about reality as you have created it and as you have designed it. And Father, so often our thinking has been influenced by the uh, corrupt thought of the world around us, the cosmic system, and by our own sin nature, our own sinful inclinations. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And Father, it is only through your word that we are sanctified, that your word uh, teaches us truth, and by living in light of your truth, then we live a life that is on the basis of your word and is set apart to you. Now, Father, as we study today, continue our study of the application and implications of Colossians 3.16, we pray that you would challenge us in terms of our own thinking, that we may come to uh, conform our thoughts to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at Colossians 3.16, and I've been talking about the issues related to music and worship in the local church for the last several weeks, and we'll probably have maybe one or two more uh, lessons on this before we begin to move forward. I know that this is a challenge for a lot of people, uh, and it may not be a challenge for many of you that are here, may answer a lot of questions for many of you that are here, but I know that in the world in which we live today, in the church culture in which we live today, a lot of what I am teaching runs counter to what has become popular over the last 20, 30, or 40 years. And it's interesting to witness the trends because a lot of this is just that. It's just following the uh, following certain trends, following certain things that seem to be popular at the moment, and then there's a, a, a shift. And I have been pleased to witness over the last decade, and since the last time that I spoke on this topic about four or five years ago, that several other, several new scholarly, well-constructed books have been published that are continuing to lay the case for why the church needs to have good, excellent, quality music, sacred music within the church for the worship of God, and that the trend that, has, that began in the late 60s and early 70s 
is really antithetical to Scripture. And this is not a welcome message for some people because it challenges what they think is just a matter of personal personal taste because our culture has said that there's no real absolutes, and especially when it comes to areas of art, areas of beauty, areas related to uh, what is technically known as aesthetics, that this is a matter of personal taste. And this is encapsulated in a saying that has been around for about 200 years, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, that was what I addressed last week. The question, is beauty really in the eye of the beholder? Is beauty in the sense of ultimate beauty, ultimate standards of excellence? Is that really just in the eye of the beholder? And I made the point of emphasizing that we all understand that that people have different tastes and different personal preferences. And so this saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder seems to have resonance with people, and they seem to say, oh, yeah, well, I can see where that's true, because in some sense there is a relative subjective sort of standard for uh, beauty, for excellence, and for what, what we like. But ultimately, if we are believers in what the Scripture teaches, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, that God is the ultimate source of excellence. And if we put it that way, everybody nods their head and says, well, of course. But see, a word that is always related scripturally and in the context of this discussion is the word beauty. And I'm taking that as the big word under which all of these others fit because that's the word that relates to this term, aesthetics. And aesthetics is really part of the the curriculum, you might say, or the, 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 the topics of philosophy. And philosophy is usually broken down into basic categories of metaphysics, big word that a lot of people don't use except in some sort of new age sense today. But metaphysics refers to what you think the ultimate reality is in the universe. Philosophy tries to answer these questions apart from any kind of revelation. And so it starts with that question, how do we know what is eternal? And that's foundational. And then the next sentence is, well, the the next issue is, how do we know anything? Uh, then the next issue is really an issue of once we know things, how do we know what is what is right and what is wrong? That gets into the area of ethics. So you go from the area of metaphysics, what's the ultimate reality in the universe? Is there, uh, is there an ultimate person or ultimately is the universe impersonal? It has to do with issues related to creation, evolution, the existence or non-existence of a god or gods, All of these things tie into that issue of metaphysics. And then you get to the next area known uh, as epistemology, from a Greek word meaning knowledge. How do we know? Uh, How can we evaluate our knowledge? And then that logically goes to the next one, next topic of ethics, which is how do we know what is right and wrong? Historically, the issue of aesthetics or beauty was grounded in ethics because your classic Greek thinkers, 
going back to the ancient world, understood that when you use terms like beauty, excellence, you looked at something, you said, isn't that wonderful? That was embedded within all of these words was a value judgment. And a value judgment that is it inherently is no different from looking at something and saying, well, that's good or that's bad. Or looking at something and saying, um, uh, saying that it is, it is evil or wrong. Uh, you know, I've taught many times that once we're t- when we talk today in the context of our postmodern world of, of cultural relativism and moral relativism, that often when we talk with unbelievers, we can sort of have a little chess maneuver as we discuss things with them because their assumption is there's no ultimate God, everything's impersonal because of uh, evolution, therefore nothing, there, there are no absolutes. What one person thinks is right or wrong is that's their view. That's great, and but they don't have a right to impose that on another person who says that just the opposite is right or wrong because everybody has their own view. And what this has led to in our relativistic culture is something called multiculturalism. Every culture is equally valid, whether it's a developed Western European culture influenced by Christianity or whether it's a matriarchal Stone Age culture deep in uh, the uh, rainforest of uh, Irian Jaya or somewhere. Uh, Every culture is equally valid. Now, what's interesting is is over the last 20 or 30 years with the rise development of multiculturalism, there's been a lot of pushback on this from conservative thinkers and especially conservative Christian thinkers. We don't believe that multiculturalism is correct. The only culture that is correct isn't American culture or Western culture, but a culture that is based on biblical truth. That's what we believe as Christians. And all other cultures are really deteriorations of that as a result of the corruption of sin. And as people reject the truth of God in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1, 18, suppressing the, and 19, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, As people do that, they substitute creation-based value systems for biblically-based value systems. But there's one area that seems to have missed the attention of evangelicals, and that's the area of music. And what we often find in the discussion out there is that In all other areas of life, there are biblically correct and biblically incorrect views. But when it comes to music, music seems to be in this neutral zone where music is not, you can't say there's good music or bad music. And my contention is that within the creation of God's within God's creation, within all that God has created, if there's any one area that isn't addressed ethically from the righteousness and holiness of God, then nothing is addressed from the righteousness and holiness of God. Because God created everything, as we'll see at the end of Genesis 2, verse 4, he said, it's all good. Now, there's been a lot of contention, but what does that mean that it's good? And you will hear from some in some creationist literature, and some people say, well, this is an ethical term. 
and it means God is saying that everything is is righteous. And I think there may be there may be some ethical overtones in some passages to the word tov, but you've got a real problem contextually in Genesis two if you look at this Hebrew word tov and say it has an ethical connotation here, because in the very next chapter God says it's not good for man to be alone. Now think about that. If good means righteous which is how some people take it when God says all of the universe, all of his creation was good. If that has this connotation of righteous, then it's unrighteous for man to be alone. That doesn't work. The word tov has a range of meanings, one one of which is everything is according to the perfect design and plan, and in that sense it is used to describe beauty. And in many places in the Uh, Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, the word that is translated into English correctly is this word tov. It is used to describe that which which comports to an ultimate standard and is is beautiful. And so there is this this reality in Genesis 1 that God created everything, and at the end he said it was beautiful, it was excellent. Because from within his own character, he has established the ultimate standards for everything. But we all know what happened when Genesis 3 came along. Adam sinned. What happened to the creation? The creation became corrupted by sin. Not only did the human race fall into sin, not only did Adam and Eve die spiritually at that instant, But we know from Romans chapter 8 that the entire creation suffers and groans under the curse of sin. It changed the laws of physics. I don't believe the second law of thermodynamics, which is everything moves from from order to disorder, went into effect until the fall. That second law of thermodynamics is directly related to the uh, fall of Adam and the corruption that comes into the entire universe so that everything becomes uh, corrupted at that point. The problem we have when we start talking about ethical absolutes or, excuse me, aesthetic absolutes is that we're looking at it from the post-fall corruption externally of the world and internally of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And so the starting point for everything in understanding what is true and what is righteous and what is beautiful must be the character of God. And so that was my focal point last time as I was helping us think through that the Scripture really does establish an objective standard for what I'm calling beauty as a summary of these, uh, these various Uh, terms that are used as synonyms in Scripture for this. Now, the reason this is important is because ultimately this comes back to helping us understand that there truly are biblical standards for music. And and so often in the the debate, and I think it's part of the uh, important part of the debate, is that the words and lyrics of many uh, contemporary songs are just not very good. They're not theologically accurate. But that's not the only, the only uh, area of evaluation. The music, music is a language, 
And music communicates something, and so the trappings that surround the words are also as important as the words because music communicates and teaches something. And so just as a frame may not be the focal point of a piece of art, the frame is important because it points to and must be consistent with that which it frames so that it brings out the artist's intentions within the artwork and that the frame is not running uh, counter to the artwork itself. And so the music that we sing is acts like in, in a similar way to the frame of artwork and music communicates something. The music is, is radically affected, and I'm not going to go down this road in this study, which I did the last time, to demonstrate that music is radically impacted by worldview. Whenever the worldview of a culture changes, the music changes. And because that happens, that in and of itself ought to tell us that music is not uh, philosophically or theologically neutral. You change the belief system, the music always changes. So there's an inherent belief system in all music. Whether you and I always understand this or not is, is irrelevant. A lot of that comes just from education, training, knowledge, experience with music, but people who really, really know music and really study music uh, understand this. And it's interesting when I talk to people who are trained musicians, and we're fortunate to have several in this congregation and several related to this ministry, uh, when I have them analyze things, I'm just amazed at what they're hearing that I have no clue about. And you're the same way because we're not educated. And, and the problem is that what I hear from people is, well, that doesn't really matter. It should matter if we're pursuing excellence in worshiping God. Now, that doesn't mean that, that when it comes to what we sing as a congregation in worship to God often you hear this kind of a response that, well, we can't sing Handel's The Messiah. Nobody's asking you to. That's not good congregational music. It's great sacred music, but sacred music is different from good congregational music. Since the time of the Reformation and the influence of Martin Luther and others, it was recognized that good congregational music not only fits certain standards musically, but it is also music that is accessible and, in other words, singable by a congregation. And not all excellent music is necessarily accessible to a congregation, so that's part of the criteria. That's just sort of a summary of what I'm addressing this morning in case we have to bug out early because of the weather. So Colossians 3.16, as I pointed out, the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And uh, I'm sort of exemplifying what this means by this series because there's a lot that I'm bringing out in this series related to music that most people don't see when they read the Scripture. And that's because of the level at which we often read the Scripture. What I have learned since I first started becoming serious about studying the word is every time you go back through something you go deeper, you see implications and applications that were not readily apparent initially. And the more we probe the depths and implications of Scripture, the more we come to realize its, its, its impact 
in every single area of our thought, and it should impact every area of thought, and there's no asterisk there that says accept music or accept anything else. It addresses everything within God's creation. And remember, the angels were singing in heaven before Satan ever fell. So singing and music and the use of instruments in music was present even in heaven prior to any any sin. I'm wondering what that was like. That tells us that, so something that there was some sort of external pattern that was considered by God to be right as opposed to wrong in heaven. I don't know where that line is. That's one of the difficulties in music is in other areas we can draw a line and say this is right and this is wrong, and when you cross this line, you've moved from right to wrong. In music, it's, it's a little more difficult, and that's why I'm addressing this is because one of the issues that always comes up is how do you establish standards for music, for congregational singing? How do you establish what is good or what is right or something of that nature? Well, what we've seen from our exegesis is we're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell within us, to make its home within us so that it's totally comfortable in every area of our life. And I paraphrased it this way, that you just put your name in there as you think through this. This is a direct command to each and every one of us, and so you put your name in there. You must let the word of Christ Make itself at home abundantly and generously in every aspect of your thinking and life with the result that you teach and admonish each other with songs, by singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs in all wisdom. That phrase doesn't modify the first part as it's put in some translations, as I pointed out. It modifies the two participles, uh, teaching and admonishing. And that we're to do this singing with grace in our hearts toward God. That has to do with our motivation. It's not saying that you, somebody tries to say, well, see, we're only to sing in our hearts. No, that's not what it's saying. It's talking about the mental attitude we are to have when we are singing overtly. Now, some of us can't carry a tune in a bucket. Others of us can uh, others of us appreciate the fact that some of you can sing and sing well, and we listen to you. When you get a congregation out here, there's four or five really strong voices out there, and the rest of you listen to them, and, and you sort of key off of what their uh, what their their voices. And that's important. You need to have strong voices in, in a choir because that helps to lead the congregation, but then you also have to have st- some strong voices scattered around the congregation that the others who are weaker in singing can key off of. I've been gratified to get a number of very positive responses from what I've been teaching in this ser- series. And I and we've, uh, often we'll get every now and then people who want to know, well, what hymnal do you use and how can we uh, download some of the uh, 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 modifications or edits or uh, additional songs that we put in the hymnal. And we do have those out on the... Uh, test site for the West Houston Bible Church uh, website. We're developing a new site, and some people get pointed to that and can download those those editions so they can have it. And I've heard of a lot of couples and families who now sit in front of their computer on Sunday morning and sing along with us. Whether they can sing or not seems to be irrelevant to them, which is great. 
They're not self-conscious. It's, this is what God's Word says. It's not just you know my opinion or somebody else's opinion, but I, I'm hearing about people who are learning that the Bible says there's, there, there's an importance to singing to God, and they're, uh, they're applying that. We do it with the result that we teach didasco. That's part of instruction is we read those words that are based on Scripture, the meditations of someone who has let the Word of Christ dwell in their life. We're taught, and we also admonish one another. We can be corrected, reminded of truth, and corrected by the, these words that we, we sing. Colossians 3.16 says, list this as the first result of someone who really lets the word of God impact their thinking. Colossians, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, lists this as one of the first results or manifestations of someone who's really being filled by means of the Spirit. Of course, we've studied this many times in the parallels between the chapters that, that Colossians 3 is telling us what we're filled with, and Ephesians 5 is telling us that it's the Holy Spirit who fills us. But part of what this relates to is, is singing. It's not something that is a, an elective in the Christian life. It's not something that is, uh, that is optional in the Christian life. It is something that uh, is a vital part of, that, of the Christian life and will be on into heaven. Of course, then we'll all have redeemed voices, and that will make it uh, much better. Now, as we look at some of these issues related to to the so-called worship wars today, there's some popular fallacies I just want to run through a little bit because I often hear these kinds of, of, of things said. And unfortunately, sometimes some of these things are said by people who uh, are arguing for or supporting what I would call a more correct form of, of worship, but they don't, uh, of singing, but they haven't really thought the issues through very much. First thing is, it's not about the beat. It's not about syncopation. I mean, I remember, I've heard people say, well, syncopation is evil. It's offbeat. It's, it, but, you know, that's, that is, that's not what this is about. That is not necessarily something that is, relates to a fallacious worldview. Uh, it's not about the beat. It's not about syncopation. It's not about how fast. Although some people who are critical of how tradition, uh, tradition, so-called traditional worship takes place are, are correct. In a lot of, lot of small churches, not ours, but a lot of small churches, small country churches, you'd think that they're singing dirges to God every Sunday morning, the way they sing hymns. They just don't sing them. You know, there are a lot of hymns that should be sung quickly and quicker than most churches do. And there are other songs that are designed to be sung a little slow down. We sang Immortal Invisible, God Only Wise this morning. It's interesting to pay attention to how the music frames the content of the words. Because it's, first of all, it's written in 3 4 time, which is typically a, a, a waltz pattern, which is a, always a little more upbeat. But the way the chord structure and everything is developed, it's designed to slow us down. Why? To think about the words. This is, this is not a sad song. It is a, you read the words, it's upbeat. So the words, the music fits that. But it is a serious meditation on the wondrous attributes of God. And so the music is designed to, to, to become a little more stately and a little more serious to get us to think about what we're saying. So it, you could slow it down too much where it might become a little more funereal. But, 
I like the way we sing usually the first three verses at a good good rate, and then the last verse we slow down just a little bit to emphasize just the grandeur and the glory of what we're saying about God. So, but, but in the debate, it's not about how fast. I've had some people ask me, say, well, I was wondering if we ought to sing this. You know, I was, they were telling somebody, they say, oh, we shouldn't sing that. It's too fast. There's nothing wrong with singing it fast if that's, if that's good. It's not about the speed. It's not about when it was written. It's not about old versus new. That is, that, that is one of those myths that always comes out very quickly in this discussion is, well, you just want to sing those old songs because that's your generation. Well, it wasn't my generation. Uh, we, we weren't listening to that kind of music on the radio. We were, we were listening to other kinds of music on the radio, but we understood that we still had a remnant of the belief that there was a difference between what we would call secular music and, and sacred music. That the music, the culture of the church has its own music. And the music of the, of the church should not reflect the culture that's outside the church. The values of the world are not to come into the church. But today we have such fuzzy thinking on the church. They think, oh, the reason you meet on Sunday morning is to bring unbelievers. But the purpose of the church in Scripture is to mature and edify those who are already believers, the saints. And the music isn't a, a tool in Scripture to attract unbelievers. But in the whole, this whole church growth movement that's developed over the last 30 or 40 years, what you often hear is, you know, we just won't get the young people there if we, if we sing old hymns because that's not their kind of music. But, you know, that, the people who say that are usually culturally ignorant, historically ignorant, and, and they're, they, they're thinking at the level of, uh, of a depth of a millimeter of water. And I don't mean that to be personally insulting to people, but if you think about 2,000 years of church history, this is the only generation that's had, the, had the, the, the arrogance to say, we want our own music. And what they're saying is, we want music that sounds like the music of the world because that's what makes us comfortable. And we're not comfortable with the distinction between the kind of music you sing in the culture of Christianity in the kind of music we sing in the culture of the world. And it reflects that. Music is, is extremely important. It's not about when it was written. Some good material has been written in the last, uh, last 50 years. But it's, and it's some excellent material, but it's not typically well-known, and there's not a lot of it because it's not what's popular. Uh, the next assertion, it's not about the theological associations of the writer. There are some hymns. Faith of Our Fathers. It's written by a Roman Catholic. And he, when he said, Faith of Our Fathers, he's not talking about Protestant Reformation, grace alone, and Christ alone faith. He's talking about what he believes to be the historic foundational faith of, of Scripture. But you see, you, we can still sing that even though his theology was a little off. And that is true for some other, some other hymns as well. Now, I think that there are some hymns and some things that are, are important to pay attention to certain things because people can become attracted to a particular composer or musical style uh, and, and our ministry that produces that, that music. And, and before long, they're buying into... A, a, an erroneous theology. 
There's a, some modern hymnists today. They're Irish. Uh, Stuart Townsend, the Gettys, uh, I believe is a couple. And they, they write, they're modern. They, they're probably in their 40, 30s or 40s today. And they're writing and attempting to write good hymns today. And there's some churches like ours who have, who have adopted uh, and, and use some of their, some of their s- songs. And there's debate amongst us as to whether that's good. One thing I just found out, nobody else found out about this, and, but, but not only are the Gettys hyper-Calvinists, they have a ministry called Sovereign Grace Ministry, not only are they hyper-Calvinists, but they're charismatic hyper-Calvinists. And the, part of the reason their ministry exists and part of what they attempt to do in their music, but it's not in every hymn, is to promote their theology. And since we live in an era where people often want to uh, get caught up in certain uh, trendy things and trendy people and trendy groups, I think this can become dangerous for some people because they don't understand the theological implications. They say, oh, this group's good, and then next thing you know, they're going off into some tangent. So we do have to have some uh, something careful about that. And then... Um, the sixth point, and I just realized I added this, and, and I don't think I changed the numbers in the next slide. It's not about how it makes me feel. It's not about how it makes me feel. And I want to add something to this because I often hear people say, oh, you know, you've got to be real careful with music because it can stimulate people's emotions. Guess what? All music stimulates people's emotions. There hasn't been a piece of music written since eternity past that didn't stimulate emotions. It's inherent. It's how it's used. It's how it's stimulated. Does it put the emotion ahead of what is being sung? Let me give you a basic, basic example. There are, this has happened, a lot of our hymns come out of historic revivalism from the 19th century. And, and there are a lot of times that, that people went to revivals and they got all jazzed up on emotion, a lot of other things that went on there, and they had a, a felt really close to God. Then what they want to do when a year later, two years later, they want to recapture that emotional feeling, so they try to do it through the music, not the words. But it's the words that should drive our emotion the music will, should, should complement that, but it ultimately should be the thought of the words that is creating the emotional response, not the music. And what happens so often today is because we live in a world that is dominated by musical manipulation, that we have a lot of contemporary Christian music where if you take the words out and you just listen to the music, you get the same stimulation. And that tells you that it's the music that's driving the emotion, not the content of the words, not the focus upon God. So it, it really isn't about how music makes me feel because I know that, that there are great hymns that we sing. And last week we sang with, with the communion service, um, uh, we, we sang a great Isaac Watts hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And, and at different times that hymn produces a tremendous emotional response in me. But that hymn is 300 years old, and it's not the the music doesn't drive the emotion. It's the words in that hymn that create the emotional response. Now, some positive things here. I guess I didn't change. I did change the number. Number seven, it, it, it is about the worldview of the music. 
not just the words, but I'm talking about just the music is music because music changes when worldview changes. So it is about the worldview that produces this kind of music. The kind of music that has characterized contemporary Christian music over the last 40 years could not have, would not have come out of a 19th century um, British evangelical culture. It never would have happened. It is inherently a contradiction. There had to be other changes to take place, and I focused on that more in the last time I addressed this in any depth. The eighth point is it is about the content of the lyrics. It is about that. That is important, and how those lyrics develop. Uh, ninth, it is about the beauty and aesthetics of the music. There are absolutes that, that we can go to to evaluate good music. Tenth, it is about the correct form for expressing the content. Some music is appropriate to certain words, and it's not appropriate to other words. The, the music of, of Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise is not appropriate to, um, aside from issues related to rhythm and meter, but wouldn't be appropriate to redeem, for I love to proclaim it. That's such an upbeat, joyous song, but the music of Immortal, Invisible, God only wise is designed to slow us down a little bit and think about the 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 seriousness of of the attributes of God and to focus upon him. So the music needs to relate to the content appropriately. Eleventh, it's about glorifying God through utilizing our very best creativity. But creativity is not without absolutes. Creativity has to be within biblical boundaries. So there's words there best. So often we say, well, what's the least I can do? And what should be driving us in our Christian thinking is, is, the, is excellence. When we think about aesthetics, when we think about something, we use words like this to express excellence. An illustration I've used in the last few weeks when we've talked about this is food not only because I love food, but I think there's a great comparison there. As I've said in in the previous weeks, there are some of us who don't have a very well-educated palate. We can't really tell the difference between a Burger King hamburger and a Bex Prime hamburger. If you're not from Houston, Bex Prime is probably arguably the best in Houston. Now, also, let's let's build on that analogy a little bit. If you look in the Houston uh, Chronicle, at their food critics page, and you look for the 10 best hamburgers in Houston, Bex Prime isn't going to be there. They have a great, great beef. They have great hamburger, but it tends to be a traditional type of burger, which is what I like. That's my personal taste. I'm not into burgers that have all these new uh, types of condiments put on them. I like basically a lettuce, onion, pickle, tomato, mustard or mayonnaise, cheeseburger, uh, with or without the cheese, with or without the pickles, whatever. But, you know, that, that to me is a hamburger. But when you start adding all this other kind of stuff that you find in some of these places uh, now, they, that's not necessarily my taste. But when we think about a really good hamburger, you've got to have quality of beef. I think you have to have options of how you want it put together so that it fits your taste, options related to how you want the beef cooked. Now, I know some of you think Five Guys Burger is the best thing around, but I think anybody who cooks any meat beyond medium rare is just just eating charcoal briquettes. 
and you go to Five Guys Burgers and you get it one way. Burnt. Well done. That's the only option. Um, again, that can be a matter of, matter of taste, but when you look at some of these, you know, the critics and they look at these various hamburgers, those hamburgers are all very good because they fit certain what? Objective standards of quality food. Now, there's also, and I'm pointing this out, there's, a, there's that subjective aspect. There's some of you who like mustard on your burger. Some of you like mayonnaise on your burger. Some of you don't want ch- cheese on there. Some of you like, like onions or no onions, whatever. That's a matter of personal taste. But when you say this is a great burger, there's an implication there that there is a standard of excellence in terms of meat, in terms of the quality of the bread, in terms of the freshness of the, mater- of, of the vegetables or uh, lettuce, tomato, pickle, peppers, whatever else you put on there, uh, that there's a freshness there that makes it a good quality hamburger. Some people we know can't tell the difference. Now let's tie that over to music. There are some people who can't tell the difference between bad music and good music uh, other than how it makes them tap their toe or wiggle in their seat. That is their only definition. Some people don't even have that. They have, they have no criteria whatsoever. They just don't know the difference. Well, we don't want... I don't want the person in charge of planning a meal, a banquet, to be the person who can't tell the difference between Saltgrass Trail and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or Burger King and Beck's Prime. I want somebody who knows, knows good food planning that meal. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be the kind of food that you're going to have at one of the top five-star restaurants in the country. It can be a simple menu, but it's done well. It's done with excellence. The same thing applies to music. music when, sometimes people in this, in this discussion think that when you say excellent music that you're thinking in terms of, of, of classics. Oh, it's got to be on the level of a Bach or a Beethoven or a Mozart or Handel. But, but that's not what, what, what's being said. Because simple music and simple tunes can be excellent music and excellent tunes. They may not be classical, but see, the problem with classic music, as I pointed out earlier, if, if, we, if I were to give everybody here the words for the Messiah, you couldn't do it. It's above our pay grade. We'll never, the congregation will never do it. It's not accessible. And so classic music is, is not necessarily what is good congregational music. Good congregational music is music that a congregation can sing well. And I don't think that, that a lot of this contemporary music, just as music, is, is, can be sung well by a congregation. I've gone to some churches, and, and they have the music up there, and they have the, the, the contemporary band up there, and incidentally, it's not about what instruments you use either. That's always something somebody brings up. It's not about what instruments you use. But they'll have the band up there, and 70% of the people in the, in the congregation are not singing. It's become entertainment. And, and some of the reasons that they don't sing is because those tunes are, are, they may be great for some Christian pop singer to sing that on the radio, but it's not transferable to a congregation. It's not something that someone who's not very musically trained can, can sing because it's difficult music. So it's not good congregational music either. 
And so, so it doesn't fit that concept of what might be considered great. Now, now you'd see anything artistic. You see something, whether it's, whether it's a film, whether it is uh, a great culinary, work of culinary art, whether it is visible art, uh, dramatic art, musical art, whatever it is, you see something that's really well done. You go, man, that's magnificent. That's wonderful. That's excellent. That's beautiful. You use these aesthetic terms, glorious, magnificent, majestic, splendid, beautiful, excellent. These are the same terms that are used often synonymously to describe God in, in the scriptures. We have Hebrew words such as tov. That's the one I mentioned in Genesis 2-4 when God looks at the creation and says it's all excellent. It's all beautiful. It's all exactly what I designed it to be. This is an aesthetic term. And then it all got corrupted by sin. Uh, it's also used to describe uh, beauty. The, the sons of God in Genesis 6 looks on, looked on the daughters of men and saw that they were, were beautiful. Tove, beautiful. Then you have the, the word yafa, which is the, probably the main word for, for, for beauty. Beautiful is the word that's used in, in the Song of Solomon for his uh, female love. Uh, yafa, to be fair, to be beautiful, to be handsome. Uh, you have the word sabi, uh, sabi, meaning uh, beauty, splendor, magnificence. And also the word hadar, or hadar rather, which means honor in some places. It's some places it's translated glory and adorn. And these words are often used in synonymous parallelism, which tells us that the Bible is saying that these words and these terms are used to describe God, that God is intrinsically beautiful. Now, I started last time dealing with this issue that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Taste Preference is in the eye of the beholder, but beauty that I'm talking about as an intrinsic, absolute quality is located in, objectively in God. And so the, the Bible uses a variety of terms to express this idea, splendid, glorious, magnificent, and I'm choosing to emphasize just the one word beauty as an overall uh, summary of this. So this is my first point in this, is that the Bible uses a number of terms to express the beauty and excellence of God. These terms establish God as the standard of beauty. Thus, God possesses, keyword intrinsic beauty. If you have two options, folks, either God possesses intrinsic beauty or he doesn't. If God doesn't, then beauty is a relative concept and it is only in the eye of the beholder. But if God possesses intrinsic beauty, then beauty has an ultimate absolute reference point that anything that's beautiful must relate to. So that means even in music that there are certain qualities that make music beautiful and conform to an ultimate absolute and other qualities that don't. The difficulty is when you get in the middle of that spectrum defining where that line is. But there's a line. It's not as if there's not one. And our job should be to uh, glorify God to the highest, which means not asking the question, well, how close can I get to the line? So God possesses intrinsic beauty, which is the standard of all excellence, splendor, magnificent beauty, and glory. Intrinsic beauty is this beauty that is inherent in something independent of a response produced. 
God is beautiful whether there's a creature to recognize it or not or whether a creature feels it or not. That beauty is objective. That's what we mean. Now, a response produced in a creature relates to the subjective aspect that may be tainted by corruption in a fallen world and a fallen, fallen culture. Now, think about this. Maybe the reason we like some of the music we like is because we've been influenced by the values of a fallen culture in a fallen world that's appealed to our fallen sin nature controlled soul. Hmm. And maybe we need to learn and redeem that in our own souls. Now, that term redeem is used, for example, in Ephesians 5.17, redeeming the time, in Romans 8, that the culture, I mean, the, uh, the creation will be redeemed when uh, Jesus Christ returns, so that there are elements within our soul that, are, that need to be sanctified. That would be another, another term. And our taste for some things needs to be changed. We need to have a re-education. Now, I don't have time. You can relate to this. I'll just illustrate this. When I grew up, I thought my mother was the best cook in the world. My mother cooked a lot of what today goes by the name of soul food, country food, a lot of fried stuff. And I loved it. And when I first learned how to cook, when I went off to college, it was the same stuff. One night we'd have fried chicken. The next night, smothered steak. The next night, we'd have fried something else. It was wonderful. But as I developed in my cooking skills, my, my, what I cooked changed. And over the years, my taste changed. And without realizing it or intending it, then one day I went over to Goodson's after about 20 years of not having a chicken fried steak. And they used to be the, the standard for chicken fried steak in Texas. And I originally went to the old, old Goodson's out in Tomball that was that old white frame house that had been built about 1915. And uh, I had a chicken fried steak, and I couldn't stand it. I, I couldn't believe I used to think that was so great because my taste changed. You might say my taste got sanctified. Somebody might disagree with me, but th- th- you see the illustration that I'm making here is that we have certain tastes in music that are often uh, shaped by our culture and our sin nature, and that needs to be sanctified by learning what good music is. Mortimer J. Adler, well-known philosopher, editor of the great books of the Western world, makes the statement related to aesthetics that we call an object beautiful because it has certain properties that make it admirable. It has those properties whether or not it's having them results in its being enjoyable by you or me. What he just said is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Something is beautiful whether you or I think it is or not, because it fits certain certain standards. Now, because of the weather and other things, I'm going to choose to stop here. But what we need to remember when we look at this is that our concept of beauty, our concept of saying whether music or something we sing to glorify God is worthy of that or not, all involves some criterion. Does that criteria, is that ultimately located in the soul of the creature or in the essence of the creator? What's the ultimate reference point? And if the ultimate reference point is in the creator, then we have to think seriously. This is part of what it means to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. We have to think seriously about how that impacts our view of music. 
And there's, as I've said before, there's a distinction made between secular music and sacred music because the music in the church should be that which is influenced by biblical presuppositions. But then sacred music can be can be further divided into music that could be sung by a choir or a professional group and music that is sung by a congregation. And so what we want to have in our worship is music, music that reflects the excellence of God that we can all sing and sing well together because that's what glorifies God. It's part of redeeming our redemption, the application of redemption or sanctification in our own lives, recognizing that because of sin in the universe, everything gets corrupted. And the process of the spiritual life and the spiritual growth is dealing with those elements of corruption that still hang over into our post-salvation life. Christ died not just to give us salvation in terms of justification and an eternity in heaven, but in order to give us the foundation to remove, to begin the process of removing the tyranny of sin and corruption in our own lives. That's Romans 6 that we're studying on, uh, on Thursday night. Christ died to redeem us from sin. And that is both a positional as well as an experiential reality with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged, to be reminded that Scripture does teach about your excellence and it does teach about your beauty and your glory. And that tells us that there are absolute standards for these concepts. They are not grounded within the creation but in your excellence, in your character. And therefore, what we do, if we are to glorify you in everything that we say and do and think, then we need to think more profoundly, more deeply about these issues. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand this as we think about so many areas of our life, not just music and worship. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. So there's nothing for you to do except simply trust in him. It's just believing that Jesus died for your sins, accepting him as your Savior, and that is all that is that, uh, that is stated in Scripture. This is your opportunity to to do that. If you've never trusted in Christ, the instant you do, then you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning and that you would help us to make them a reality in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.